As humans, one of the areas in which we are the most innovative and creative is unfortunately when we're trying to make ourselves better at waging war. And two of the main ways to do that is to one, make our soldiers harder to kill, while two, making them more capable at killing. In this episode, we'll look at plans to do both. One is to fill a soldier with drugs, and the other is to surround a soldier with augmenting armor. This is all Hello and welcome to the Uncover Up. I'm one of your co-hosts, Nathan Radke, and with me here in the bunker today to discuss super soldier programs is Dr. Lee Kunla. Hello. World War II happens. Okay. In World War II, obviously the super soldier thing really gets cranked up a notch. And when I say cranked... Oh yeah. We get back to drugs. I, I do so deliberately. Yes, you do. Because now we're going to get into the real use of drugs. Like by real, I mean industrial created and administered yep. pharmaceuticals in order to make soldiers last longer in the battlefield. Yeah, this and isn't a couple of Vikings eating some mushrooms before they go off to fight. This yeah. is going to be like medicalized, industrialized, yeah. bureaucratized, well, all of those things. And what we're talking about is amphetamines or what might be more commonly understood as speed. Yeah, um, a.k.a. tank chocolate. Tank chocolate. So let me give you just a very quick background on this. So amphetamines is, is a class of drug um, that work as stimulants. And they are originally derived from a, a desert shrub known as ephedra. That now, ephedra is something it's a that... a pretty name for a girl. It's a, I think it's just a pretty name. Yeah, and it's a, it's a funny little plant. Ephedra, it's, stop running around the house. <laughs> it's, it's, it's like... Um, Sort of like a stick-like grass. Or if you imagine like a, a miniature bamboo tree, like that okay. kind of grass that has these like little nodules in it. It is actually a lot of, if you are in Canada, there are pseudoephedrine is an ingredient in nasal decongestions. So if you ever get that kind of stuff when you've got a cold and you, you squeeze it up your nose as a kind of a nasal spray and it clears out your sinuses, that's pseudo ephedrine and and that is closely related to that wild grass and in fact what is it i think it's called mormon tea is just the wild ephedra grass with hot water on you know soaked in hot water you can drink that and it has the same medicinal qualities like if you have a stuffed nose it'll clear it up it will reduce your appetite and it will give you lots of energy yeah ephedrine uh, amphetamines is basically just the key ingredient distilled out of that, that happens in 1927. By 1936, in Germany, they figured out how to do the whole thing synthetically. It's Dr. Otto F. Ranke in 1936 in Berlin who, de who developed something that is known as uh, methamphetamines, and this is a synthetically created amphetamine. And this was then given to... American soldiers, British soldiers, German soldiers, Japanese, uh, Japanese soldiers, soldiers yep. probably many others. In First, it was developed as a nasal or sort of like an inhaling spray, and then quickly thereafter in pill form. It was given to these soldiers to keep them up and give them energy. Yeah. So if you were going to do like a long-haul flight, for example, 
you take some of these and you would not have any difficulty staying awake for a 20-hour flight or even a 40-hour flight. Yeah, because, I mean, the effects of meth amphetamine, uh, increased alertness, increased energy, it's a mood elevator, it's an appetite suppressant. Of course, there are some side effects as well. Uh, addiction is a very serious one for yeah. amphetamines. Severe withdrawal. Worse than cocaine withdrawal. Okay. It's extremely addictive. Psychosis, paranoia, meth mouth. Uh, which, meth mouth? Yeah. Never even heard of that. Well, when you get a dry mouth and then you grind your teeth a lot. Oh, And okay. you're probably not, if you're on meth, you're probably not thinking, oh, I should probably brush my teeth. <laughs> it's pretty bad. Yeah. Meth mouth is pretty bad. Loss of appetite, as I've said, heart problems, digestion problems, and of course, death. Well, to your earlier point, though, about how it makes you feel good. And I want to give you this quote from a, uh, this comes from the third Panzer division. That's, uh, Panzer is the German word for tank. This is from the Second World War. And I got to just give you a reference. There's a great book that I used for some of my uh, background research. And the book is called Killer High, A History of War in Six Drugs. And I thought it was a brilliant book because it does just that. It gives you a history of war through the lens of substance use and abuse. But here is the 3rd Panzer Division reporting on the effects in the Second World War of eating tank candy or speed, tank candy being the American uh, nickname for it. Here's the quote. Often there is euphoria, an increase in attention span, clear intensification of performance. Work is achieved without difficulty, a pronounced alertness, effect, and feeling of freshness. Work throughout the day, lifting of depression, returned to normal mood. Yeah, they didn't mention the meth mouth in that. No, and they didn't mention what uh, becomes a, a problem, say, in the Vietnam War, where this is used a lot. That sense that you talked about of coming off the drug and just the horrendous feelings has actually been linked to wartime atrocities. But yeah. we'll just park that for now. I wanted to just give a sense of that. Oh, yeah, no, this is something that was quite widespread in the Second World War. And people saw methamphetamines. And this is true of a lot of new drugs that emerge on the market. When they first show up, they're the wonder drug. And they're used for everything and everybody. Like cocaine was used for toothache. Yeah. And uh, this was used... Heroin was a cough suppressant. And, and, and methamphetamines were uh, diet pills for women in the 40s, 50s, and 60s. Yeah, because you grind your teeth down and then you can't eat anymore. You also don't feel hungry when you're on speed. Now, speed makes sense, makes a terrible kind of sense historically, because World War II sees a new kind of warfare. In World War I, it's, it's mechanized, it's industrialized, but still there's like a, a limit to how fast you can invade. Right. Because in World War I, basically, you can only invade a territory at the speed of a horse. Yeah. Horses get tired, they get injured, they need to sleep, they're also squishy. But in World War II, of course, we see a large portion of the German army during the initial invasion was mechanized. They were driving panzers, as mm -hmm. you said. And they could travel at the speed and relentlessness of a tank. And so now the weakest part of a tank is what? That would be the human occupants. Exactly. Because the tank might be able, as long as you keep it fueled up, the tank can drive for days and days. Yeah. But can the human drive for days and days? No, the crew inside needs to rest. But because of the doctrine of Blitzkrieg, the idea is, no, you have to invade, like you have to penetrate into the border 
you have to get further than anybody imagines, and that causes the defenders to sort of become in disarray. And it's just this sort of this this shocking initial invasion, which doesn't give them a chance to get prepared for it and doesn't get bogged down in the trench warfare of World War One. Well, you're going to need these guys to be superhuman. You're going to need yep. them to be as strong as tanks. Yep. You're going to need them to be as relentless as their panzers, which means they're going to be cranked up. And so the director of the German Research Institute of Defense Physiology was a doctor that you named uh, Otto Ranka. And he thought meth was the solution to the Blitzkrieg issue. Yeah. He said meth was, quote, an excellent substance for rousing a weary squad. We may grasp what far-reaching military significance it would have had if we managed to remove the natural tiredness using medical methods. With pervitine, which is, of course, the brand name for meth, right. you can go on working for 36 to 50 hours without feeling any noticeable fatigue. And so the German pharma plants are pumping out the meth. In the early 1940s, 800,000 tablets a day of meth is what they're making. Because the raw ingredients are readily available. Yeah. And it's very cheap. Yeah. And which is why be, just between April and July of 1940s, uh, 1940, in the early stages of the war, German soldiers received 35 million doses of Fliegerschokolade, which would be... Uh, flying chocolate. And Panzerschokolade. Which would be tank chocolate. Yeah. And after British soldiers started encountering German soldiers, the British press described the Germans as, quote, heavily drugged, fearless, and berserk. Okay. Which is a callback to our previous right, story. Right, right, right. Now, of course, many of the German soldiers also suffered from dizziness, depression, hallucinations. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, like, this doesn't turn you into a super soldier. Meth doesn't eliminate the need for rest and sleep. Right. It just hides it from you. Yeah. You still need it. Yeah. It's like if somebody cuts off your arm and you don't feel it, you're still going to bleed to death. Right. Like there are certain physical realities. And, and unfortunately, I mean, we, we saw part of the horrors of that war were the people who had become addicted to meth who then had to struggle with that addiction even if they survived the battlefield. Yeah. Well. There are just certain physical realities to our squishiness, even if war will not allow us to be squishy. Well, and that is going to be, I think, another recurring problem that dogs, all these attempts throughout history to generate super soldiers seem to ha kind of come to the same conclusion at the end when they're like, hmm, this isn't really working that well. And I think they, uh, that, that problem is rediscovered in the Vietnam War where methamphetamines are also very frequently used. And I'll give you some numbers in a second that I found absolutely shocking. But... The consequences were that the soldiers didn't feel the pain during the war. Now, this was both physical but also emotional and psychological pain. How do I put this? There's a statistic about how many times soldiers need to be removed from the battlefield because, they're, they're, because of stress responses. Basically, they just can't take it anymore, which seems to me a totally reasonable pretty, pretty response to it. But I can imagine that there comes a point where you're like, well, you're not doing us any good here maybe even a liability they have statistics around that those statistics dropped quite dramatically in vietnam where soldiers were not they did not need to take many out of these stressful conflict situations and this might have been because of the use of amphetamines but what you have is then ptsd skyrockets in vietnam soldiers who were returning back because as you say it just masked the pain 
It masked also the psychological pain, the psychological damage of seeing the things that you see in war. And the things that you've done. And the things that you've done. And you can then keep participating in it. But that stuff is going to catch up with you. I think much in the same way that sleep will eventually catch up with you. I mean, you can, I guess, dose yourself to the point where you stay awake for 50 hours. But once you come crashing down, you will eventually go to sleep. You're going to crash hard. Yeah. You're going to crash like somebody who spent 50 hours awake. Right, exactly. And maybe I should move into the Vietnam era because I often find that you talk about things like the assassins or the berserkers and maybe even back to World War II. It seems like, well, that's the past and people did silly things in the past, like they didn't know about cocaine, they didn't really know about speed. So sure, you know, here you go. Little kid, if you have a toothache, here's some cocaine. Have some cocaine. Here, mom, if you want to lose some weight, here's some speed. Okay. Or maybe so, a tapeworm. Right? So we, we, we can bracket that as almost being the, the foolhardiness of the past. The, the amphetamines in the U.S. Army is something that is still happening today as essentially official policy. In the Vietnam War, again, it, it gets ratcheted up even more than it was during the Second World War. I have here a statistic that I got from the History of War Through Six Drugs. In 1969, the U.S. Army took more amphetamines than all British and all American armed forces and all of the Second World War. That's a lot of crank. That is a lot of speed. Another statistic, maybe as many as 225 million tablets of stimulants, mostly dexedrine, which is twice as strong as the stuff that they were using in the Second World War, was being consumed. Here's a, here's a yearly statistic. That's um, around 21 pills per person in the Navy, 17 and a half pills per person in the Air Force and 13 pills in the Army. Now, of course, that being a statistic, that's going to mean that some people aren't taking any and, and some, some are taking them every more. day, yeah. right? But it again shows that this is not a peripheral phenomenon. This is something that's pretty much, it's part, in fact, of the standard issue medical kit that you also get amphetamines in it. Now, there's all kinds of issues that, arise as a result of this, including addiction and uh, PTSD, and a lot of drug issues result out of experiences in Vietnam, and people either self-medicating, using heroin, for example, to self-medicate from the pain that you see, and also the kind of industrial pharmaceuticals that were being given quite freely to soldiers, and, you know, they some of them became quite addicted to them. Now, that doesn't stop, though. So even today, uh, so I have here another statistic from, say, the Gulf War. So during the 1990-91 Gulf War, almost two-thirds of fighters, that is jet fighters, in Operation Desert Shield, and more than half of the jet fighters in Operation Desert Storm were taking amphetamines. This isn't illicit drug use. This mm -hmm. is, again, this is provided to you by... You're going on your mission. Here's, here's your mess. Here's your kit. And it, it, it remains, as far as I understand, standard practice to today. Mm -hmm. Which is interesting where you have, on the one hand, this war on drugs. The U.S. Army is at, was at various points in Afghanistan burning down the opium, uh, the poppy field, to try and, quote-unquote, reduce the drug trade. Right. While the very soldiers who are there <laughs> are on their own drugs. Well, I mean... 
soldiers of all nations, like their bodies get get used by their by their nations and their minds and their souls. Like these are human beings who are being put in situations that human beings have a very difficult time in. Mm. And it just just sort of adds to that tragedy where then they come back and now they've not only got perhaps some like physical injuries from the war, some psychological scars from the war, but now also potential addiction issues. And then right. they come back and receive almost no support right. from the country that they were oh. fighting for. Yeah. I mean, the the problem with, with homeless Vietnam vets in the 1970s and 80s, oh, yeah. it was a catastrophe. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a moral catastrophe for sure. So what about exoskeletons? Ah, yeah. So if, so if drugs are tricky... <laughs> drugs don't work so well. Let's move a different direction. Yeah. A direction that at first will seem less disturbing and then eventually will become very disturbing. Right. So as hungry as the battlefields of World War II were, by 1990, we had killing tech that would have been unimaginable in the 1940s. Yeah. Like cluster bombs and direct energy weapons and tactical battlefield nukes. And throughout the Cold War, the Soviets and the Americans had very different philosophies when it came to violence. Okay. The Soviets had this idea that quantity has a quality all its own. Right. Now, of course, that, that is a quote that that's, is often... That's what gets you to send two million uh, soldiers to Stalingrad, That's example, right. Just right? send a bunch... Well, should we arm them? No, it's, it's fine. It's fine. There's two million there's, of there's them. There's so many of them. It's fine. Now, that quote is often misattributed to Stalin. Okay. But he... I mean, if, even if he never said it, let's face it, Stalin believed that. Sure. Like, that was his solution. Just yeah. throwing men after men after men until the, the victory was assured. But the Americans had more of an idea that quality has a quantity all its own. Uh-huh. So they had very well-trained soldiers, very well-equipped uh, well soldiers. And th that's expensive. You, yeah. You've got a lot yeah. invested in those soldiers then. So you want to keep them alive in the battlefields. And how do you keep this well-trained and equipped soldier alive in the battlefield of the 1990s? Well, DARPA, of course, an organization that we have come across many, many times. Yeah. The, uh, well, maybe we need a bumper sticker of who they are. Yeah, they are a group of borderline mad scientists yeah. who come up with some of the wildest ideas having to do with military. Yeah, so they are Q in um, James, James Bond, Bond yeah. right? If you imagine Q being an entire agency, oh, and DARPA wasn't exactly an agency, but if you, if you think about them, if you think about like Q being a bunch of scientists instead of one guy, mm -hmm. that's who they are, though. And, I mean, they have done some impressive things. The internet, for example, yeah, the internet was, was, was heavily influenced by DARPA. It was the DARPAnet. So in the 1990s, DARPA, this group of mad scientists, start working on a project titled Super Troop. We, we are, this is uh, from Paul F. Goodman, August 1990. Super Troop via iPort. Distributed simulation technology for combat development and training development. So this is basically like what, like a strategy paper, a think piece for the DARPA people to start thinking about advanced warfare. Yeah, and it's saying like, here's some potential things that we're working on, right? So it starts off by acknowledging that if World War III breaks out, like full blown, there's no way to protect anybody. Okay. Because you're going to have nukes flying. Right. And at that point, it's over. It's It's gone. However, with the fall of the Soviet Union, which was pretty much imminent at this point, the Pentagon was convinced that the future of American warfare would involve smaller skirmishes in third world countries, mm. like a lot of urban fighting and things like that. So how do you protect a soldier in the modern battlefield? First thing is armor. Okay. 
Now, as I have said many times, and I will continue to say, <laughs> humans are squishy. Yep. And they react poorly to bullets and shrapnel and explosions and napalm. Mm-hmm. We just, we don't react well to it. Therefore, the DARPA super soldier would be well protected with a kind of exoskeleton of reactive armor. Okay. It would be able to absorb shocks. So you could like jump off of tall buildings, for example. Yeah. And then it would be, have shock absorbers that would like absorb that. That impact. I mean, this is exactly the kind of superhero stuff I'm thinking of in the late 90s, early 2000s, into the 2010s. All of the Iron Man, Starship Trooper, Avatar stuff where they have, they can do that. They're yeah. normal human beings, maybe a little like more muscular than the rest of us. But they're in these wild suits. But it's the suits that give them the superpowers. Yeah. And you right. could also jump higher and run faster, all these other things. And then you can you can even augment it with, like, night vision goggles, so you can now see at night. Oh, we'll like get you, to that stuff. You have a helmet on. We'll get to all of that. Yeah. We're still with the armor at this point. You can, you can, like, bounce high. I mean, that's the dream. If only I could bounce high. I would win this war. <laughs> you, you can stop bullets. It's bulletproof. They won't penetrate you the flesh. You can lift things, like crazy heavy stuff. Yeah, because you don't have to worry about breaking your own bones, because your bones are being reinforced with this... It's like you're half human, half ant. Yeah. Or half hydraulic machine. Yeah. But the trick is they knew from previous experience, especially World War II, that one of the hardest things a soldier has to deal with in the field isn't necessarily even being fired upon, but trying to maneuver with all this extra equipment weight. Yeah. So if I can just um, flesh that out a bit. So this comes from General Paul F. Gorman. He notes that one of the biggest, as Nathan just said, one of the biggest problems was fatigue in the battlefield. So in a genuine battlefield, uh, you, you got to like put a whole bunch of gear on a soldier. Who knows how long they're out there? Like they might be airdropped somewhere and they need to bring their radio and their food and their medicine. Maybe it's their, 110 degrees. Yeah, exactly. And then they got to carry all this crap around. So there were some soldiers who showed up like on the beaches of Normandy and they're like, I can't move. Yeah, like I, I just... cannot move. I can't walk. I can't lift my rifle. They have these self-incriminating accounts where they feel like horrible people because they are unable to do now in the battlefield what they thought they were able to do really well in training. And he, he termed this, I thought it was a bit unflattering. He termed this the weakling of the battlefield. Right. And he wanted to address this as a problem. Like how do we address fatigue as being you know this real obstacle to soldiers managing to do the kind of stuff that they do so the exoskeleton program as i understood it was in large part to augment a soldier's ability to just walk around with heavy stuff on their backs without succumbing to fatigue this is another problem that's faced by uh, first responders like firefighters uh, in doing my research, I encountered the fact that some firefighters, if they're if they're going up, say, a high-rise building where, of course, they can't take an elevator, one guy, his only job is to carry the gear because they know that by the time that person gets to whatever floor is burning, they're done. Yep. They can't do anymore. So all they do is they get in, they get out, and that's their only job. Now, but imagine if we had exoskeletons where everybody could carry things 200 times their weight, and it felt like nothing. Because the trick is, unlike a suit of armor of a medieval knight or a samurai or something, this suit would also be powered. Right. So it's it's not just protecting you, it's amplifying the actions of the soldier inside it. They wouldn't just be wearing it, they're driving it. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. 
So armor is only strong as its weakest point, obviously. So the suit should also cover the soldier completely, including the eyes and face. Eyes are, in some ways, the squishiest part of us. And covering the face also allows built-in filtration systems for biological, chemical, and radiological threats. Okay. Because, again, we've gotten extremely good at creating hell. Yeah. But it poses two problems, having this face mask. One is a lack of visibility, which in the field translates to a lack of C3I. <laughs> they always got to like come up with their own terms, right? Uh, DARPA apparently was calling soldiers, the hell was their term for it? Warfighters. Yeah. You're like, why do you need warfighters? You already, we've been using the term soldiers for hundreds of years. But no, no, DARPA has got to come up with their own terms for everything. Something new. So it's warfighters who, who... Who suffer from a lack of C3I. C3I, okay. Command, <laughs> control, communication, and intelligence. Right, okay. It makes sense. If you've got a helmet on, it's hard to see outside. And also, there's another problem, a lack of esprit de corps. Okay. Because the soldier feels alienated and isolated in their armored shell and is less able to cooperate with or feel connected to uh, their fellow soldiers. Right. And this is a really serious problem. But this crisis can be turned into an opportunity. Okay. It's a crisis-tunity <laughs> through the use of virtual reality. Oh, okay. Instead of looking out into the real world, the DARPA super soldier would be looking at a computer screen on the inside of their helmet. Yeah. This screen... Uh, would be connected to a computer that would be providing the soldier not only with visual information, but augmented images as well. Yeah. You could have infrared, for example. Right. You could have, like, I don't know. Like ultraviolet. Ultraviolet. Uh, you could have that sort of Terminator scroll where, like, yeah. on the inside of the helmet, it's saying, oh, this is this kind of tank, and here are its weaknesses. Like, yeah, it could be providing you information. Wikipedia citation. Yeah. You could have Wikipedia <laughs> citations. In order to make the soldiers encounter less horror, the sounds of combat could be tuned out with only important information getting through to the soldiers' ears. Right. There could even be a translation program built into the computer. Right. So that the soldier would be getting live translations from any non-English speakers in the area, mm. which would be great for interrogating locals. Right. So as well, the computer would be hooked up to some sort of like a, I don't know, like a, like a network, like an information, almost like a web Right, like, like a, a super highway of like some sort? Like a super highway. And it would be linked up to all the other soldiers, as well as the local commanding officers and higher-up commanders, miles behind the battle lines. Yep. So it would be like also like a smartphone. I mean, this was the 1990s. I had never heard of the internet at this point. Right. I didn't use the internet until 1994, but already DARPA's like, oh, we got to get the internet into this thing. Yeah. And it's, well, because that's what it, that's the whole point of it. Right? I mean, it wasn't necessarily for super soldiers, but they were the ones who created it. They were working with it already in 78. They've got, you know, able to send texts to each other. Uh, so they, they're like on the forefront of this technology. They know it can be useful. Yeah. And, and kind of like stirrups surprised us both by how important that was in warfare. Communication is crucial. Yeah. I'll give you a quick example. In the early days of the Eastern Front of World War II, the Russians had better tanks than the Germans. Mm. The T-34 was better than the Panzers threes and fours. Mm. Come at me. But that's it's just true. <laughs> oh, yeah. I'm sure uh, half the listeners, you've just alienated half the listeners. And they're like, oh, what about the Panthers <laughs> and the Tigers? I'm talking about the early days of the Eastern Front. Everybody calm down. <laughs> So the Russians had better tanks than the Germans, but the German panzers had radios. Yeah. And so this allowed the tank commanders to coordinate and share intelligence about the battlefield situation, whereas the individual Russian tank commanders, they had better tanks, but they were blinded by the fog of war and unable to work together effectively. 
Well, that's interesting you mentioned that. There was one tech that I decided to cut from my presentation, which was the Roman infantry and cavalry, well, Roman army's use of flags. Oh, yeah, semaphore. And so that's how they were able to communicate to people, you know, quite far away. As long as you would be able to see them, they could tell you we're being routed or we've broken through enemy lines. The type of communication that if you didn't have that system would take the uh, what the speed of a rider to do so yeah. you're going the speed of a horse versus light speed and of course if if you can communicate better you win yeah communications and information are both valuable force multipliers now we're talking like dark yeah i know they're so, going to give us a job one day so not only would all of this communication and connection cut down on feelings of isolation but also reduce amicide what's that friendly fire incidents oh dear the suits would also be monitoring the soldiers vital signs heartbeat, respiration, and any injured soldier would have their location and health information immediately sent back to a medic unit who would be able to find the soldier and start treatment immediately. Okay. You know what would be even better than that, though? Mm. The suit itself could be a medic. Yes. I've heard about this. You could have painkiller drugs and syringes built into the inside of the suit. Yes. And then it detects you're in pain, starts jabbing you with needles. Okay. So the idea, as I had encountered it, was that it was going to work like a vaccine. Mm-hmm. And so, in fact, that you would get. So this was actually a, an area we didn't even really elaborate in our initial differentiation of the concept of super soldier is this other kind of tech that would allow you to to operate forever. So we talked about drugs and exoskeletons. But what about things like, yeah, like like a kind of a, um, a vaccine, but against pain. Mm-hmm. So just as Nathan said, if if you were seriously injured, you feel it for like five seconds, and then this quote-unquote vaccine-like kind of drug operates to send out all these neurochemicals that make you feel just fine. And so you yeah. can keep fighting. You're still least. badly injured. Oh, yeah, but you don't but notice. You don't, but you don't notice it. And so this is sort of the basic idea. And from here, they springboard off into some really wild ideas further on. There was a program, for example, to investigate the feasibility of injecting soldiers with millions of microscopic magnets. Right. Oh, I like this one. This is if you were to get an injury, like... like um, uh, A bad cut or like... Exactly, or a gunshot wound mm-hmm. that's really bleeding really badly. Somebody with another magnet could come and kind of bring all those tiny magnets together around the wound, right? Like using their magnet, they would affect the magnets in your body... And then would kind of seal up the wound magnetically. Like an artificial clotting agent made of tiny, tiny little magnets. Boy, we're smart. There was the the chip that they were going to implant directly into soldiers' brains, which would allow them to communicate with stuff. Well, I mean, this is where we started to get really wild. Cochlear implants. Like, rather than having the soldiers operate the suit and communicate each other with their muscles and voices. Yeah. What if you could plug the suit directly into their brains? Yeah. And so now rather than I move my arm and the suit moves its arm because it detects my arm movement, what if I just think I want to move my arm right? and it automatically moves its arm the way I want it? Okay. Now, what is the difference between you moving your arm? The tiniest delay. And also... No, no, but how does your arm move? Well... I mean, I, by the fact that I move my arm, there has right. been a thought yeah. in some way of moving my arm. So isn't just moving my arm already the thinking I'm going to move my arm? Except the difference would be, you would think you'd move your arm, you'd move your squishy arm inside the exoskeleton arm, and then the exoskeleton arm detects your arm moving and moves accordingly. 
Mm. So there's a tiny delay there. Right, and this would counteract that delay. Yeah, right into like your brain. So it's like, move the arm? Sure, I'll move the arm. Right. And so you don't have to have that, that tiny, tiny delay. Okay. It would respond as if it was literally part of the soldier's body. Right. Not only that, but then you hook that, that mental mainframe up to the other soldiers through that World Wide Web Super Information Highway. Yeah. And now you can basically have a kind of telepathy between soldiers. Right. They would be able to hear each other's thoughts. Right. This all sounds... Like a nightmare? Well, it does sound like a nightmare. It also sounds like wildly science fiction-y. And it sounds like a better idea on paper than in reality. Well, imagine, like... Imagine hearing 16 other dudes' thoughts. Yeah. With, I mean, like, <laughs> you and I spent 16 hours in a car together. We yes, drove we down did. to an American Air Force base and back, and it was a delight. It yeah. was a very pleasant time. I but enjoyed I think, it very much. I think part of it was the fact that we weren't sharing each other's thoughts exactly. for 16 hours. Had we been sharing each other's thoughts for 16 hours... <laughs> You would have been like, my God, how much time do you spend thinking about chicken sandwiches, right. Nathan? Exactly. This is outrageous. And I'd be thinking, what do you mean you want to throw me out of the car? So the thing about this telepathy idea, as, as ridiculous as it sounds, they were genuinely working on it. I've got a, a quotation here from a DARPA scientist, Eric Eisenstadt. Imagine a time when the human brain has its own wireless modem, so that instead of acting on thoughts, warfighters, there you go, have thoughts that act. But there was some pushback against all of this, not only because it seems maybe not that feasible from a technological point of view, but in a 2008 report, the concern was raised that having the brains of soldiers directly connected to an external network could lead to the very real possibility that the network could be hacked into, which would then lead your soldiers to become mind-controlled by your enemy. Right. The former director of DARPA's Defense Science Office, Michael Goldblatt, was interviewed by Annie Jacobson. Okay. Who is, of course, is somebody whose work we use a lot. And she asked him about this possibility and some of her concerns about these, these brain implants. And Goldblatt said, How is having a cochlear implant that helps the deaf hear any different than having a chip in your brain that could help control your thoughts? Mm. Now, okay, this sounds really sinister. It does. But Michael Goldblatt, he has a daughter mm -hmm. who is physically disabled. And I think it's multiple sclerosis. Yeah. Um, and so he is actually quite familiar with this kind of intervention and doesn't necessarily see it as scary as you do. He's like, well, look, if, if she can get an implant and it's going to help her, why is this any different from doing it with a soldier? Now, I'm not saying that's my argument, but it is his. And I think it all depends on the motivation and the consequences. I'm a consequentialist. Right. I think if something like this can help people with degenerative diseases, that's amazing. Yeah. Like, that's, that's super amazing. That's incredible. And we should definitely be working on that. On the other hand, having a bunch of soldiers whose brains can be controlled remotely, as a utilitarianist, I'm less on board with that idea. Now, he was asked about the, the possible like disasters that could yeah. come from something like this. And Goldblatt said, there are unintended consequences oh, right. for everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is also a true point. It, it is true. <laughs> but not a good argument but necessarily. But not necessarily. Lots of things are true, but aren't good arguments. Now, I remember, and I think some of the movies that kept referencing, there's many others besides, I remember seeing a real buildup 
about this in the news, in popular culture. This kind of exoskeleton super soldier stuff seemed to be everywhere about 10 years ago. Yeah, it was the future. It was the future, but it was the future that was just around the corner and people yep. were working on it. Yeah. So I, I know that the army, for example, they start their TALUS program. That's the Tactical Assault Light Operation Suit. And if you look at this thing online, I mean... It looks like one of these exoskeletons also with the, um, the face totally covered and there's like four camera type objects looking out. So they're into it. Uh, we see it all over pop culture. Now, I was surprised... And, it, and it's not like we stopped having wars. Exactly. I was surprised that you can like, you can go online and look at, and even for that matter, actually buy an exoskeleton. There's the Lockheed Martin Onyx exoskeleton, for example. Um, there's most of the major tech companies that do military work have some kind of branch that's working on an exoskeleton. I uh, discovered a, some hilarious YouTube videos as I was doing research where people bought some exoskeletons for themselves and tried them out. One guy in particular who is um, he's a well-known YouTuber, but I'd never encountered him, Alan Pan, got himself a quite cheap Chinese knockoff exoskeleton so that he would be able to wield a humongously large and heavy anime sword, which really made me very happy. And you should go watch that video if, if you're interested because it's hilarious. But there would seem to be this time when everything was all over the place. And yet today, there are, as you say, there are still wars, but there don't seem to be super soldiers. We know that they're on drugs, at least some of them, but they don't seem to have this exoskeleton stuff going on. Now, the one thing might be, it's just too soon, and you know, and wait maybe another. Maybe we see it in ten years. Exactly, or right. fifty years. Maybe it's still coming. But I've encountered actually some problems with this very idea that I think some of these organizations that tried to create them encountered. What have you discovered? Like, why don't we have exoskeletons everywhere? Well, it's interesting because sometimes it's the technology that emerges that you weren't expecting that makes the technology that you were working on kind of redundant. Oh, okay. And in the case... I might need an example. Well, I mean, I'll use this as an example. They might have been working on these exoskeletons, but as the exoskeleton project is moving forward, we start to see things like Wi-Fi taking these giant leaps Okay. to the point where now we can have reliable drone technology. Uh. And so then the question becomes, wait, why do we put the person in this suit when we could have a person controlling a drone from like halfway across the world, why are we putting them in the battlefield at all? Right, right. And that's in fact what we do see now is more and more use of robotics. Yeah, robotics so, and drones and so, this sort of technology. And, and I think, for example, like um, bomb diffusing. So you, yeah, you could put a person in an expensive, somewhat cumbersome exoskeleton and send them out in what is an incredibly dangerous environment or maybe nuclear reactors. You know, that have gone, what's the word? Meltdown? Yes. Where's Shelly when you need her? Um, nuclear reactor meltdowns. You know, when some when, when people got to go in and like touch stuff and move stuff, and they, they, you know they're going to die no matter how thick their suit is. This seems like perfect stuff for robots to do. And in fact, that's what they're doing, right? Like more and more we're using robots for these things as opposed to people in exoskeletons. Ah, but do you know where the exoskeleton might reemerge? With, a, with the advent of another technology. And that is, if we get so good at 
hacking into networks that we can no longer trust them, ah. we're going to have to put people back in those suits. In the same way that it, you, we could have at this point airplanes without pilots in them. Right. But the danger is they get hacked and then you've got no control over them and now all of a sudden they're the enemy's airplanes. You want to have that human still in the plane. So I could see a situation where we're having a problem where our drones are getting hacked and then we got to send people back out into those, those battlefields. So, I, I mean, I've, I find this somehow hilariously ironic because then I could imagine also those things getting hacked. And, and so the future of war is actually like a war from 200 years ago because we eventually devolve our technology because everything can keep being hacked. And so the future looks a lot like the past. Right. And so then we think, well, you know what's not going to get hacked? This big stick. Right. Exactly. The, uh, one of the problems that I encountered with it was the power source. Um, yeah, so I mean, as, as Nathan said, the exoskeletons are powered. Mm -hmm. Now, there are some that work on compressed air. Now, I'm not an engineer. And uh, my understanding is that you don't necessarily... I saw ones where you had a machine. Uh, so these machines generally, and the batteries are in the backpack. And then you wear those and plug them into the exoskeleton. But as I understood, there were some cheaper versions that, that didn't require a machine. So this Alan Pan who got his off eBay, he... Uh, it was not a powered one. But most of them require power, and that's a problem mm -hmm. because the, we don't have great batteries. Like, these things use a huge amount of power. Yeah. And what you have to do is add the weight that comes onto the soldier by just carrying the battery as well. So the battery has to be able to power the soldier, the exoskeleton, and the battery pack. Yeah, the we're battery looking, has to be able to carry itself, basically. Yeah, so we're looking at... 300 pounds, maybe 400 pounds when you put it all together. That's a lot of energy just to go walking around in a forest. Mm -hmm. And so that's one of the big problems is how do you actually power this stuff? And if you actually needed to change batteries every hour or two in the battlefield, well, oh, where it's a logistical nightmare. It's a logistical nightmare where you're getting the batteries from. Like now do you have a drone carrying batteries so that you could just exchange them all the time? I mean, it's sort of the similar problem that is right now with electric motorcycles. Yeah. Uh, electric motorcycles exist, but you can't go very far in them. Yeah, I mean, the law basically is you, can, you want it to go far and fast and cheap. And you can yeah. have two of those. Right, right. You can't have all three. Exactly. And again, then you have this other technology that's quite um, compelling, which is just, well, we could use the robot. Mm -hmm. And already it's lighter. And it would probably cost less if you think about all the training and stuff that the soldier gets. And But is hackable. Is potentially hackable. And also, I don't want to be an alarmist here, but I feel like there's some movie I've seen somewhere where we build like a massive army of killer robots. Right. And then it goes badly and it backfires on us really i mean what could possibly go wrong with an army of killer robots and that movie was called runaway starring tom Selleck. <laughs> uh, the other thing is that often how do i put this we've already actually already solved the problem like we have is as cool as the idea of a kind of an iron man suit is and i have to admit i have thought about like couldn't i actually just like buy products and construct an Iron Man-like suit at home? 
I have thought about this, and I've I've, I've thought about the different things. Didn't you ruin to... your life by trying to build a shelf once? Yeah, no, no, I wasn't going to build it. These were going to be ready-made components oh, that okay. I just, I'm the first person, turns out a lot of other people have had this idea, but I thought I'd just be the first person to put it all together. I'll get like a night vision helmet thing, and I'll get, um, there used to be in the 90s, these shoes that almost worked like springs. Sure, I've used those when I was drywalling a ceiling. Yeah, yeah, right? So there you go. And and then maybe you get the the, the cheap exoskeleton from China that uh, Alan Pan was using, and then you get some... Uh, okay, you know, I thought you could create one of these by no, yourself. I'm, I'm, I'm almost afraid to ask, what were you going to do with it? Uh, nothing. Hmm. This is this is part of the the prepper fantasy of when everything goes wrong. Oh, then, it's an apocalypse thing. Yeah, then okay. I got I got my Iron Man suit. Right, all suckers are like trying to find so shelter. I'm, I'm, I'm lying on the side of the road, and then you just bounce by in your Iron Man exactly. suit. Exactly, and you're like who's laughing now? Exactly, exactly. Diabolical. <laughs> anyway, as cool as it would be mm-hmm. to have all that stuff and to be able to do it all. We already have machines that do most of these things, but better. Yeah. So you want to lift something really heavy. Well, there's a forklift. Yep. I know a forklift is pretty boring. It's really good at doing the thing you want it to do, you know, or jetpacks. You want to fly. I mean, jetpacks are a disaster. Like you can get up into the sky, but chances are you're going to like crush your skull hitting a light in a light post or, you know, some kind of object, or it's really difficult to... Or you're you going to run out of fuel. Or you burn your heels. Like, you know, you just, just get in an airplane. Or... So it seems that when you're actually trying to fight a war and equip an army, you start to make these kinds of really rational decisions, like not what would be... <laughs> what would my soldiers like to do and, and, and how cool would it be, but just what's actually going to be economical and and feasible in the actual battlefield and for that reason then the talos that i'd mentioned that the army started looking into in 2013 they shut down the project in 2019 and they were like this is not feasible and the other exoskeletons they their military application i am not convinced that there is much of one there is, though, another area, which is a lot less sexy, but there's another area where this does seem to have some really compelling um, avenues of development, and that's with people with, say, spinal cord injuries. Um, so in the medical field, um, the exoskeleton stuff on uh, for legs, like people with... I saw um, a, a guy on Wired Magazine in YouTube. He had terrible knees and he was testing out an exoskeleton. He was like jumping off of things with weights on his back. And he's like, I can do this now. And so you can imagine ex-football players who've shot their knees or people with terrible arthritis or people with spinal cord injuries. These kind of people may benefit from this military research. But I'm, I'm not sure. What do you think? I think that would be amazing. I think that would be amazing if we took our ingenuity... And rather than saying, how can we make more injuries? We could say, how can we help people who already have injuries? Mm. I like it. 